we've all been dumped uh, by a partner. We've mm-hmm. probably, we've all, you know, been maybe experienced rejection from a social group, uh, maybe fired from a job or lost a career. And that feels like a death because it's a threat to our sense of identity. Right. So that's just, you know, we can all connect with that intuitively. Um, but the sense that's relevant in the climate debate, I think, has to do with what we commonly call the culture wars. Because depending on your sort of cultural worldview and value set, that's going to inflect the way you interpret what climate change is, whether you see it as a problem at all, and what kind of problem you see it as. Good morning, friends. I hope you're doing well this morning. I had a bit of a slow morning and I actually just got out of a morning meditation. Shout out to Aditi on Peloton meditation. I'm feeling like I just set my intention for the day and it seems very appropriate considering today's episode on philosophy and climate change ethics and economics. I just wanted to bring your attention to our Instagram. I know I've mentioned this in the past, but if you're very invested in Palma, there's an Instagram, Palma underscore collective. And on that Instagram, I'll post notifications when a new episode is up. There's a cute playlist I curated just for my Palma listeners. And I have some really exciting stuff in store potentially a book club, some meditations to think about, and potentially climate-related news. So just keep an eye out for that. Today on the podcast, I had the pleasure of introducing you to David Story, who I actually went to COP with. He's an associate professor of the practice in the philosophy department at Boston College, where he teaches courses on the history of philosophy ethics, theology, technology, and, of course, climate change. He received his PhD in philosophy in 2011 from Fordham University and is a certified philosophical counselor with the American Philosophical Practitioners Association. And he's a certified Koru mindfulness instructor. His research and teaching interests are in environmental philosophy. In the episode, we talk about ethics and values and how they find their way into the discourse related to climate change, what good grammar looks like in our public intellectual discourse about values, policy and politics, and we do get into some climate anxiety discussion. I think this discussion is really interesting and robust and adds a deeper level of analysis to the climate debate. And I just want to thank him again for his time and wonderful, wise words. Without further ado, please enjoy the episode and have a great day. So how can philosophy be leveraged in the climate space? And how do you use your philosophy lens to think about the climate crisis in general? And for folks Mm. who don't really have a philosophy background, like what does that even look like? Yeah, yeah, great question. So let me throw out a few ideas. First one is that philosophy can be good therapy. Mm. Uh, And I say that because 
you know, concerns about climate's effect on mental health are rising. Uh, and people, you know, might think, well, therapy, you know, that's psychology, not philosophy. Right. But the truth is, uh, psychology and uh, you know, I think it's fair to say most of the social sciences, and we can get into this later, whether it's economics or sociology, uh, are children of philosophy. You know, one of the most uh, prominent uh, therapeutic modalities is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the founders of that, uh, such as uh, Albert Ellis, uh, were heavily influenced by the Stoics, the Stoic mm-hmm. philosophers. And, you know, long story short, the basic idea is that, you know, we feel certain ways because we take certain actions and we take certain actions because we have certain assumptions, certain beliefs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if our beliefs are irrational or misguided, then, and we reframe them, then we'll act differently and we'll feel differently. Right. So, you know, I I think that many of the mental health challenges that people have around climate uh are a function of misguided assumptions. Mm. Uh, and some of that you know, may just be empirical matters, um, but some of it has to do with larger or deeper structures about values and worldviews right. that people are often unconscious of and mm-hmm. worldviews and value systems that have a deep history. Um, so that's a second way that philosophy can be useful is uh, just being informed about the history of ideas can help us get distance from the present mm-hmm. so that we're not prisoners of the assumptions and values of the present that you know mold our our thinking and our psychology um, just as an example uh, a great re- uh, resource for your listeners there's a book written a few years ago by a historian named Charles Mann it was okay. called the wizard uh, the wizard and the prophet and he was contrasting two different sort of archetypes, two different basic templates for thinking about environmental problems. Wizards mm. reflects the notion of kind of technological progress and optimism. Right. Um, his example is Norman Borlaug, the father of the green revolution in agriculture. Uh, prophets are sort of the doom and gloom sayers. Uh, mm-hmm. His seminal figure for that is William Vogt, uh, who was mm. one of the founders of, of the modern environmental movement. Um, so those are different orientations toward the role of technology. Uh, one is, you know, about progress. One is about a sort of historical decline. Uh, another one is, it, you know, when people think of philosophy, they think of it as one discipline in addition in the humanities, you know, mm. as opposed to history or English or whatnot. But that sort of disciplinary defining of philosophy is actually quite new. Uh, it stems mm-hmm. from the late 19th century and the rise of the modern research university. Schools were schools of philosophy. Right. Philosophy for the ancient Greeks like Plato and Aristotle, it was sort of a meta-discipline. Mm-hmm. It was the discipline that tried to coordinate all the disciplines and think about the connections between them. And given that climate is sort of the interdisciplinary problem right. par excellence, uh, philosophy can potentially provide you know big picture thinking to see, okay, how do we think about the relationship between economics and politics? Right. Uh, how do we think about the role of psychology and culture uh, in politics? Mm-hmm. Um, example that's very relevant, I think, to the climate debate is in the field of economics. So this is, is super wonky, but you know, this is what we're here for. So mm-hmm. 
if you want to set a, carb, a price on carbon, one of the variables that economists have to plug into that equation is called the social discount rate. Right. And this is kind of thinking about, uh, if you think about compound interest, you know, the value of a dollar grows over time. Mm -hmm. This is like compound interest in reverse. So the further we go into the future, the more we tend to discount the value of mm -hmm. goods and services in the case of climate, uh, you know, costs and benefits or you know, climate damages. But it turns out that to uh, come up with a discount rate, whether it's 2% or 5%, you have to make a value judgment. It's not a purely, uh, it's not empirical, and it's not sort of a, a purely mathematical designation. Mm. So there's a place where ethics and values sort of find their way into an economic analysis totally of a particular yeah. policy and that often doesn't get recognized because a lot of the the discourse around climate is conducted you know in sort of a stem uh framework that's you know about quantitative analysis and it's engaging with the so-called external world mm -hmm. we don't have a good grammar in our uh let's say our our public intellectual discourse for talking about values. We tend to see values as just merely subjective and arbitrary. But if you look at the way most of us live and the way that our laws are formulated and we order our societies, we're not really relativists. We're not really yeah. subjectivists about value. No. So then, the, then the question becomes, you know, what's the right view of justice? What's the right view of values to plug into or to guide uh, climate policies? And those are fundamentally totally. ethical questions, not scientific yeah. or empirical questions. So yeah. there's more I could say, but that's, you know, some ways that philosophy can shed some light on, uh, you know, climate policy and then thinking about it. Yeah, there's definitely like two underlying things that I want to come back to. I think something you hit on is the idea that climate is an existential threat and we have to see it as this larger thread of how we've been functioning in society from a very extractivist from the way we've been thinking about nature and the way that we value nature. And I think to your point, there's not a lot of language on that. Nowadays, it's kind of being like, we're almost reframing the narrative of how we can revalue nature, which I feel mm -hmm. like is where this whole ESG debate comes into play, where people are trying to put a price tag, like something very finite, on mm -hmm. certain resources, which I've been in spaces before where that discussion is being had. You know, if you speak to different cultures, there might be a different idea of what that looks like. And I feel like this is one of the first times in the West that we're having this conversation and seeing it from a different lens. So I was just mm -hmm. curious too, like if you've had any conversations with folks about how do we reframe this so that we have better language? I think that one of the most promising ways of thinking. Uh, it's not new, but it's beginning to move into, are you familiar with the notion of the Overton window? No. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's just, this is a really helpful concept for, for listeners to get if they don't know it. Yeah. So the Overton window is named after a political scientist named Overton. Uh, and it was, a concept, it was a concept he introduced to, to try and describe how conversations happen in public. Uh, and so the idea is that, you know, at any given time, there's an acceptable range of discourse, what you can say and can't say mm. in public spaces or in, you know, in uh, political life. Um, 
and some things fall outside the Overton window. Uh, so, you know, for a long time, questions about degrowth uh, mm. and questions about alternatives to neoclassical welfare economics were just sort of laughed out of the room. They were mm. way outside the, the Overton window. They weren't taken seriously in academia. Um, but because of changing conditions on the ground, the Overton window has shifted. Uh, and now more people are taking seriously uh, a field of economics called ecological economics. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the ideas there, uh, Herbert da uh, Herman Daly is sort of the founding father of this discipline, uh, is that the way that we think about what an economy is for the last several hundred years has been fundamentally wrong mm. in that we've pictured nature as sort of an input to the economy, natural resources as an input. Um, uh, whereas in reality, the economy is something that happens inside of nature. Uh, and so it's a conceptual reframing mm. uh, so that, uh, and, and we've been, you know, pretending that the two are somehow separate mm. uh, and uh, that we need to figure out how to reorder our economies uh, in such a way that they are just more aligned with that aspect of reality. So that's, that's one idea that I, that I see coming more into the Overton window and being taken more, more seriously. It's part yeah. of a larger conversation around what comes after neoliberal economics um, that goes beyond you know, climate issues, but is related to it. Well, I think something you touched on that I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into was we've already started to hit on how, you know, it's being branded as a climate debate, but, you know, the science has been around for a long time. And, you know, I think we've spoken about how this is really a proxy for a deeper cultural conflict that's at play, at least within the U.S. I kind of want to keep it within the U.S. because that's what I know the best. How would you begin to speak about the cultural conflict? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's, are you familiar <laughs> with the phrase, it's the economy, stupid? <laughs> no. Oh, so this was, this was a, a, a phrase popularized by James Carville back in the 90s during the Clinton era. It was basically, uh, if you want to understand what's happening in electoral politics, look at what's happening at the economy. It's the economy, mm. stupid. Uh, so I want to paraphrase that to say it's the culture, stupid. It's, mm. it's the culture wars. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whenever there's a disagreement about policy or, or climate, uh, you know, debate and so on, I think there's always something else going on. It's never just about climate. Climate is a proxy for something, uh, mm. something more. Um, and uh, I like to think about the, you know this notion of existential threat that you brought up is very interesting. Uh, I think it's helpful if we distinguish between a physical sense of that and mm. what we could call a psychic or cultural sense of it. So you know, the, the way that climate usually gets cast in sort of a, a narrative in the culture is it's an existential threat to humanity. <laughs> well, it's so doom and gloom. Yeah. Well, so. What do we mean by existent, exist, existence and what do we mean by, uh, and who's the we? That's, right, that's important. Right. So two issues there. So if we mean, and this is how I start my, my climate change class off, uh, you know, with this, it's the end, it's end times. Like, don't look up. Uh, right. Hopefully we'll come back to don't look up because I have a lot to say about I that. I love I've, that movie. 
I've I've written about it too. I love it as a movie. I hate it as a uh, a climate allegory. But I can, agree. Can, it, very interesting, yeah. though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's put let's put a pin in that. Um, okay. And come back to that. So, is the world going to end? No. Uh, nature will be just fine, even if we mm-hmm. went extinct. Um, is the human race going extinct? Almost certainly not. Right. Mm-hmm. The latest science indicates that those sort of catastrophic scenarios are, are are very unlikely. So we're not talking about the end of nature. We're not talking about the end of life on Earth. We're not talking about the extinction of the human race. Um, we are talking about uh, life and death threats to large numbers of people, particularly in the global South. Mm-hmm. Um, so the threats are extremely uh, differential with regard to you know where totally. you live and how developed your economy is. So that's important to note. But for me, the more interesting sense of existential threat is more psychological and cultural. Mm. And the, the easiest way to connect this, with this is, you know, uh, we've all been dumped uh, by a partner. We've mm-hmm. probably, we've all, you know, been maybe experienced rejection from a social group, uh, maybe fired from a job or lost a career. And that feels like a death because it's a threat to our sense of identity. Right. So that's just, you know, we can all connect with that intuitively. Um, But the sense that's relevant in the climate debate, I think, has to do with what we commonly call the culture wars. Because depending on your sort of cultural worldview and value set, that's going to inflect the way you interpret what climate change is, whether you see it as a problem at all, and what kind of problem you see it as. Take an example. Um, if you know, if you're sort of somebody who's center right, uh, very you know pro free market, uh, you could call them Wall Street Republicans. Let's say a Reagan um, Republican. Yeah, uh, you know, climate uh, climate change policy presents to you as a threat mm-hmm. because you assume it means more regulation. Uh, you assume that it's going to harm private industry. That there's a, there's a zero sum game between government action on climate and economic growth. You also believe that the key to solving climate, if you think it's a problem, is uh, technological innovation and economic growth. Um, So that part of the culture experiences Mm -hmm. climate change as a threat, not to human survival or nature, uh, but policies that will sort of get in the way of the human progress machine. Right. Uh, If you're a progressive, then, of course, you see it very differently. Um, And those have to do with, you know, deep seated, uh, you know, value systems uh, Mm -hmm. and, you know, how you view capitalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, there's also very interesting social scientific research on uh, how uh, people understand the natural world. some people understand it as very fragile. Uh, so the progressive worldview is correlated with that idea that nature is very fragile and you know we can we can wreck it. Um, the sort of modernist worldview is more associated with the idea that you know nature is something we need to conquer. It's something we need to master through scientific progress uh, progress and technological innovation. Um, if you're a more traditional uh, sort of conservative Christian, then you see nature as in God's hands. 
Mm. And the no- the notion that human beings could uh, you know wreck it and fundamentally mess it up is actually a sign of human hubris. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's also this idea that you know God created nature in this sort of stable order, uh, and you know we can't really fundamentally alter the pillars of creation. Um, so I could say more about those three worldviews: traditional, modern, and progressive or postmodern. But those are what I see as the the three main camps, kind of battling it out, and they yeah. all have different views of human nature and the divine and. Uh, and the natural world and its value. Uh, so um, that's what I think you need to look at is that often disagreements about the facts are really disagreements about values mm. deep down. And so totally. if we go beneath the level of policy and politics into kind of culture, religion, um, worldviews, that's where the action is. So that's kind of what's happening like behind the scenes and often yeah. behind behind the back of consciousness because people are often mm. not aware that their worldview is a view mm-hmm. they just see that this is what's true and good and right. the other people are either very binary or, or stupid yeah yeah i was mentioning carbon pricing and the, mm. the social discount rate before the the conceptual problem with the discount rate is how do you pull the value of future climate damages and the benefits of climate action into mm. the present so that people can experience it as a dollar value which of totally course, at the macro level moves things it's very much an analogy with what you were just describing is for a long time uh climate was something that was happening in the future uh, and, you know, uh, I mean, we can barely, you know, imagine and visualize what's going to happen, you know, next week, let alone what's going to happen 50 years or 100 years. So yeah, because of the limitations of our cognition, uh, and particularly uh, the way that we are motivated to take action and care about things, very hard to wrap mm. your head around and act in accord with distant realities. Now that this is materializing more in the present, uh, I think that that's one reason things are starting to shift uh, in mm. terms of the uh, the sense of urgency. And, you know, I can tell you as somebody who's been tracking this issue very closely, uh, not just uh, in terms of the science and philosophy, but the political discourse, uh, yeah. you know, for almost 20 years now, uh, it's hard to overstate how much more climate has moved into the Overton window mm, totally on the, be- on the beachhead of the, the public discourse. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, it's very much moved on since then. So in some, and I think that's one reason also that now, you know, mental health issues associated with climate are, you know, becoming a thing. Uh, particularly for many, many young people. Something that I definitely want to touch on because I know we're sort of getting to time is something you mentioned about climate anxiety really kind of piqued my interest. My listeners tend to be on the younger side and part of Gen Z. And from a personal perspective, I deal with climate anxiety all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was just wondering, like, in your philosophy studies, your conversations, your storytelling, 
What's a some advice that you could give to my generation dealing with climate anxiety or anxiety in general? Um, and like, what's something that makes you hopeful? As you indicated, like mental health issues for Gen Z is is off the charts. I mean, the numbers are staggering. Mm-hmm. Um, a resource there for folks to check out is a new book called Generations. It okay. came out by Gene uh, Twenge. She's a psychologist at San Diego State. And uh, she tracks, you know, all sorts of metrics across different generations and how is Gen Z different. Mm. And, you know, her, her thesis is it's largely tied to the ubiquity of smartphones and, and social media. Um, I think there's there's quite a bit to that. But I think that to to link climate to uh, let's call it our information climate, uh, or you could also think of as our, our sort of epistemic environment. So epistemology, uh, for folks who don't know, it's it's a field of philosophy that deals with with knowledge, theory of knowledge. So right. how do we arrive at our beliefs? How do we determine whether our beliefs are true or false, etc. Um, and the truth is that for, for your listeners, you're growing up in a more dizzying uh, cultural environment than any human beings who've ever been alive have been in. The way I like to describe this is with an analogy with calories. For mm. most of our species history, the problem was not enough calories. The problem today, at least in developed countries, is that we have too many calories. Yeah. We have a similar problem with information. Um, you know, our Organisms evolved to process a certain amount of information uh, over you know, a certain period of time. Uh, we have too much information now, and uh, it's too chaotic. It's too hard to sort out what's true and what's false, um, or even just to figure out like what's actually happening in the world. Yeah. And we, we've also lost a shared set of assumptions mm. around what's real and what's good. Right. So that collapse of a shared culture leaves the growing mind flailing, mm-hmm. um, trying to make sense of the chaos. Right. Um, so I think that just, just knowing that is helpful. You know, I think that's true across a number of issues, but, but climate especially. Mm. Um, so uh, in terms of don't look up, it's it's great it's so entertaining it's yeah. well it's well produced it's well acted it's slick it's funny etc um but it reinforces an apocalyptic uh mm. mindset uh because we really have to redesign uh almost all the moving parts of our societies yeah um and our infrastructure and everything so in a way it's it's a it's a it's a call it's a it's a solution to mm-hmm. a a generational problem so uh you know i think the way to encounter the anxiety that many of us feel around climate is to to do what uh, one of my podcast guests described he said after a while when he would give speeches to uh, these big corporate audiences mm-hmm. he'd say I, I realized that when i was getting anxious before going on stage I was getting ready. My mm. body was getting ready. And so I would encourage your listeners to try and receive the anxiety they feel when they think about or read about this issue as uh, 
their body's getting ready to take action. It's really interesting that you mentioned the fight or flight response, because I do think like to what you were saying earlier, there's a better understanding that when we divorce ourselves from nature, that not only is it bad economically, but it's also bad for our mental health and for our overall like well-beings. So I feel like this idea that more people are also understanding that value from what you were saying earlier, a mental health perspective, and then from a policy perspective is really encouraging. Well, I'll definitely leave it there because there's so much more to say, but um, we're definitely over time and there was so much so much more we could chat about. I really appreciate your time and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. It's my pleasure and keep up the good work. 